So as we've seen in the book so far, the Colossians, Paul writes to the Colossians specifically to deal uh, with a false teaching that is threatening the church. And this false teaching, as we have seen from the whole book, as you look at the whole book, it is uh, presenting certain regulations or observances that the Colossians are supposed to follow that would provide them, so the false teaching says, a fuller religious experience, a fuller spirituality. And I think we um, face similar things today, things that people say that we need in order to have a fuller spirituality, things that people are tempted to look to as providing them some sort of superior religious experience beyond what we already have merely through faith in Jesus. So as I was sitting down and trying to think through what are some of these uh, false teachings today or, or, or just things that we look to to sort of supplement what we already have in Christ, things that we think maybe provide us a superior spiritual uh, experience. Maybe it's a book that claims to present some key to reaching a new level in your spirituality and walk with God. Or maybe it's uh, a certain church tradition that says we ought to observe a system of sacraments as something like levers we pull in order to access God's grace. Maybe it's the prosperity gospel which says give more money or act out in faith in a certain way that proves you really believe. It's, it's then that you're truly spiritual. Maybe it's attending a certain conference or a workshop that promises to give you some spiritual breakthrough. Or it's doing penance, that I need to supplement Christ's work by doing my own works. And only when I do penance, then I am actually holy before God and not before then. Or it's attending a church that has especially moving music that helps you achieve a spiritual high during worship so that you can, quote-unquote, truly experience the presence of God. Maybe it's following a certain leader or preacher who uniquely has greater access to the truth or, or can more uniquely provide better teachings from Scripture. Maybe it's saying specific prayers like the rosary or the prayer of Jabez. Maybe it's praying in tongues. Some, some church traditions say that you have to uh, manifest praying in tongues in order to actually be filled with the Spirit. Or there's some, some sort of idea of well, you need to experience some sort of special filling of the Spirit to really be spiritual. Maybe it's an online course that promises to unlock some new spiritual insight. Or it's looking to things like Lent as if they provide you an extra spiritual edge that those who don't observe it are somehow lacking. It's following certain legalistic rules, maybe a church culture that says you have to do all these certain extra biblical standards that we spell out, and that's what qualifies you as being spiritual. Or maybe it's just being a part of a certain Christian culture where you're expected to talk in a certain way about spiritual things, or you're supposed to use certain Christian vocabulary when you pray, and it's when you do those things you're spiritual. Or we need some sort of hidden knowledge or new teaching that the church has missed up, into, uh, up until now, some new gospel that's been found. Or maybe some people are attracted to go to some ancient liturgy or a high church experience 
the smells and bells sort of church where they feel that there's more transcendence and they feel closer to God. Or even if it's not sort of an ancient liturgy within a church, maybe it's this new teaching on some daily liturgy, a liturgy that you follow every day that somehow makes you more spiritual, gives you a closer relationship with God. Are these claims true? Does Christ, does the Christian faith, as we have originally received it through the scriptures, does it need to be supplemented? And Paul, in our passage today, says this, no. We ought to continue in Christ, not being taken captive by any false teachings or any alternatives. Why? Because we have full salvation in him already, by faith. Continue in Christ, he says. Don't be taken captive because you have full salvation already in Christ. And we'll walk through those two essential points here as the passage is unfolded for us. This first is the command to continue in Christ. And then we'll spend the bulk of our time looking at the reason he gives. Because we have salvation, full salvation in him. So first let's look at the command that he gives. He tells us to continue in Christ or to walk in Christ, or on the flip side, is to not be taken captive to a false teaching that would cause us to not continue in Christ. He says in verse 6 and 8, 6 through 8, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, or as he says later, just as you were taught that this tradition that you received, as you were taught by Epaphras, as we saw, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This imagery of walking is it's going in a certain direction. This is how people would have traveled back then primarily, not with cars, but they would walked places. This is a, a kind of a fundamental way of speaking about the direction you take. You're supposed to walk, continue walking in Jesus. What does this look like? It looks like being rooted in him, sort of this plant imagery. As many of you know, I was talking about how we cut down that tree in our front yard. We also uh, tried to take care of these two thorn bushes in my front yard, and those thorn bushes were beasts to take down. Like, it was miserable. I, had so, I got poked so many times. We're, to be, we're supposed to be like those thorn bushes that are so rooted that we're, that we're not easily swayed or taken down. We're supposed to be built up like a, this is building imagery, architecture imagery. We're supposed to be established in the faith. That's what it looks like to walk in him just as we were taught. The other part here is that we're abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive then. Captive by what? Well, by this sort of empty and deceitful philosophy. And then he describes it as according to human tradition. It's just, this is merely human teaching. It's according to the elemental spirits of the world, or as some translations say, the elementary principles. So it's the basic building blocks of of the world's way of thinking. And it's not according to Christ. In other words, it, it doesn't fit the gospel you've received. It's another gospel. Continue in Jesus, being sure that you're not taken captive by any alternative. That's the main command of the passage today. And then the rest of the passage we see in verse 9, he says, for, or because, you might translate it. Because, why? And this is where we get our reason. And his reason we can find in verse 10, clearly stated, because you have full salvation in him. Notice verse 10. You have been filled, or you have fullness, literally, in Jesus. 
who is the head of all rule and authority. You have fullness, and as we'll see in the verses that follow, the fullness that Paul is talking about here is a fullness of salvation. We have fullness of salvation in Jesus. You don't need to go after that false teaching, in other words. If there was a husband here who uh, came up to his wife, I don't recommend doing this. If a husband that came up to his wife and said, Hey, wife, I, uh, I have an idea. What if I take another wife and we have two wives in this marriage? That would make this marriage more full and more rich, wouldn't it? To add, of course, is to just make this even better, right? What can go wrong? We'll just add to the marriage. It'll be much better. To add something in a marriage like that is, is not to make it richer. What does it communicate? It communicates, well, no longer is this marriage exclusive. No longer is the wife seen as sufficient. To add in this case is actually to subtract from the marriage, not to, not to increase its meaning, but to detract from it, to take away from it. And so what Paul is doing here by emphasizing the fullness of Christ is similar to that. He's, he's saying if you add to Jesus, Jesus is all you need. You have fullness in him. And if you add to him, it's not making it better. It's making it worse. To add in this case is actually to subtract It's subtraction by addition. It's to diminish the sufficiency of Christ. It's to diminish the exclusivity of Christ, that he's the only one that you need and that he's all that you need. It's to suggest that something more is needed when he is it. And so Paul then goes on in the rest of our passage that we'll look at today to show us five aspects of that fullness of salvation. Five aspects. If you're taking notes, we'll go through each of these five. The first is that Jesus is full divinity in human form. And here we go back to verse 9. We saw that we have fullness in him, and verse 9 tells us, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. It's the same word there. The whole fullness of what it is to be God dwells bodily in Jesus. In other words, this is a clear statement that Jesus is fully God in human flesh. Truly God, truly man. And so why is that important when Paul wants to emphasize that we have everything we need in Jesus? Why is it important to emphasize that Jesus himself is God and has fullness of divinity within him? Well, as God, that means Jesus is fully capable of providing our salvation. As one commentator, Doug Moo, I think, summarizes it really well. He says this, quote, All that human beings can know or experience of God is found in Christ. And so Christians, simply by virtue of being Christians, have access to all this knowledge and all of these experiences. We need look nowhere else. Jesus is God. Everything that we need in God is therefore found in Jesus. Everything we need for a relationship with God is found in Jesus. Everything we need to experience the presence and the blessings of God is found in Jesus. And as we saw, that word fullness is used twice. Paul is using it as kind of a play on words here, right? He says that Jesus has the fullness, all fullness of deity in him bodily, and you have fullness in him. We lack nothing, in other words, that you have the fullness of the one who has the fullness of divinity. He has everything we need. It's like the person who, to look elsewhere, it would be like the person who has this, this well of water that, is, that has all the water they will ever need, all the fresh water they will ever want, and they look and try to find their water 
in these contaminated pipes, scouring around trying to fill up a pail with dirty, contaminated water. When they have all that they need, the fullness of the fresh water they need. And so we have the well that is Christ. Secondly, we see that our sinful flesh has been circumcised in Christ. Our sinful flesh has been circumcised in Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, God gave his people circumcision as a sign to mark them off or to set them apart. And one of the things that we see circumcision symbolizing in the Old Testament is this need for a transformed heart. So in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, uh, the law says this. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In other words, the physical sign of circumcision pointed to the need for a truer circumcision, a spiritual reality of not a physical organ being circumcised, but their actual heart, their actual nature being circumcised. And Paul is saying here that this has happened in Christ, that this spiritual, this heart circumcision has happened for those who are in Jesus. Look at verse 11 with me. In Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. In other words, he's not talking about literal physical circumcision that you would do on a child. Okay? By the putting off of the body of flesh, though. That's how it's happening. By the circumcision of Christ. This is heart circumcision, spiritual circumcision, we might say. And, and, and whereas literal flesh in circumcision, the literal flesh is cut off from the male genitalia, so here in spiritual circumcision, our sinful flesh has been cut off in Christ. That's the imagery. If you've read uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Narnia series, there's this moment where Eustace, who's kind of a brat of a kid in the beginning of the book, he's really full of himself, he's, stuck, he's kind of stuck up, thinks he knows it all. As, as C.S. Lewis says, he's not the right sort of kid that knows, knows a lot about adventures. He knows a lot of useless facts. Okay? But at one point in the book, he gets turned into a dragon. And that's really meant to be a picture of who he is as a, as a kid. He's a, he's a dragonish type child. And he can't rid himself of the scales. He can't turn himself back into a boy until Aslan, the lion, who represents Christ, of course, shows up and peels off his scales. And, 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 and Eustace talks, he's explaining it later, I think maybe to Edmund, about how it, it was very painful. It hurt, but there's a part of it that felt good. It's like, he says, it's like picking a scab where it's like it hurts, but it, it's kind of relieving at the same time. And that's the idea here. Is, is, that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to capture, is that our old sinful flesh has been removed by Christ. This spiritual circumcision, this circumcision of our heart, no longer an external sign, but now an internal reality. Paul's point then is that we don't need anything outside of what we already have in Christ to circumcise our, our flesh, to battle the flesh. We have everything we need to do battle with the flesh because it has been decisively defeated already in Jesus. And notice how this contrasts to the false teaching. If you look over at verse 23 in chapter 2, they, they, the false teaching promotes all these self-made 
you know, rules and religion and, and severity to the body, but he says, Paul says that these things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Same word. Those, those, that false teaching, that doesn't actually help you put to death the flesh. But in Jesus, your flesh has already been removed. It's gone. And how has this heart circumcision of our flesh happened? Well, Paul goes on to explain that our sinful flesh has died with Christ. We have died with Christ as depicted in baptism, he says. Look at verse 12 now as he continues. He says, having, in other words, he's explaining how this has happened, having been buried with Jesus. That old self, that flesh has died. It's buried with, been buried with Jesus in baptism. In which, in this baptism, you were also raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. As you are believing that God raises Jesus from the dead, so God has raised you from the dead. Our sinful selves have died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ, becoming new people in him. This is what elsewhere in scripture, we sometimes in theology or elsewhere in scripture, we call the doctrine of regeneration. So to generate is for something to be made, to regenerate is for it to be remade. Or sometimes scripture talks about the idea of a new birth. You were born physically and now we are, we are dead spiritually, but we are reborn. Or we talk about, Paul says that we have been made a new creation. We are no longer a part of the old creation, but we've been made new and we're a part of the new creation. We ourselves are new creatures, as the King James would put it. Or here he talks about heart circumcision. These are all images for the same idea of the fact that we have been made new in Jesus. The assumption here, of course, is, is the fact that the Bible describes us prior to Christ, apart from Christ, as spiritually dead in our sins. And he says that in verse 13. He says, In you who were dead in your trespasses, dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. You, had the, you, were, you were bound by the flesh. You were defined by the flesh. You, you were dead with respect to your, 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 your law-breaking, your trespasses, uh, going over the boundaries of God's law, in other words. That death, according to scripture, is not merely a physical reality. It's the death of everything we are meant to be, both physically, yes, but also spiritually, so to say, in terms of who we are meant to be as God's image bearers who worship and serve him. That aspect of us has been marred, it's been corrupted, and we are dead in our sins. We are lifeless when it comes to the life we ought to have worshiping and serving God. But in Jesus, Paul says, we have already experienced resurrection. That as Jesus has risen from the dead, so all those who trust in him, they share already in his resurrection. One day we will eventually share in his resurrection physically. When he comes again, we will be raised physically with him, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. But even already, we've already experienced the renewal of the inner self, as Paul says elsewhere. We've been spiritually raised with him. There's one resurrection, but it comes in two installments. First, we experience it with Christ spiritually, and then in his coming, our physical bodies will catch up to speed, so to say. And baptism, Paul says, this immersion underwater symbolizes our burial and resurrection with Jesus. This is, this is why we practice immersion, right? Because immersion is picturing this, that we, when we go under the water, it pictures that we have died with Christ. Our old self is dead as he was dead and buried. So we share in his death. What he did for us on the cross is true of us. We are dead to sin. 
And that old self has died, and as we are then raised out of the water, it pictures our resurrection with Christ. We have been raised, we are a new creature. And as Paul says in Romans 6, he uses the same language. We are to walk in a newness of life now. We have died to sin. We are no longer slaves to unrighteousness, but we are slaves to righteousness, and we are new people in him. And it's not that baptism itself does these things, let's be clear. But notice, it's inasmuch as baptism is tied to faith. Baptism becomes something like the hyperlink to refer to the totality of the conversion experience of faith and repentance. We're saved by faith. And he says that here. He says it's through faith. Having been buried with him in baptism through faith. So all of this, though, assumes the doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ is this idea that we are attached to Christ such that what is true of Jesus is true of us. Salvation is found in him. He has accomplished it. He has died to the power of sin. He has risen to a new way of life. Sin has been paid for in him, and he has been risen, justified, and those who are saved are, are saved because they are connected to the salvation that is Him. in him. They are connected to Jesus. You might think of it this way. It's sort of, some people have explained it like being on a plane. When you go into the plane and the plane goes up in the air, so you go up in the air. When, the, when I traveled to Israel and the plane landed in Tel Aviv, so I was in Tel Aviv. Where the plane goes, I go. What is true of the plane, that's it, at this altitude, it's at that altitude, becomes true of me. I'm at that altitude. I'm at this altitude. And so when we are in Jesus by faith, when we, when we grasp Jesus by faith and he grasps us by indwelling us with his spirit, we are so connected to him that what he has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection, in his perfect life on our behalf, that becomes true of us. God considers that to be us and he makes it true of us as well. And so we are joined to Jesus and our baptism is seen as a picture, as a symbol, as a pledge and seal of this reality. In other words, Paul is saying, you are a new person. You have died with Christ and you have risen with Christ. The 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are new creations in Jesus. And so that means we have the power in Jesus to live as new people, to live as a new humanity. We are, a, we are an, an enigma to those around us. We ought to be. Maybe you're someone who is saved later in life and all of a sudden your friends are like, hey man, you're no fun anymore. But there's something so different about you. Like I just can't put my finger on it. And they're confused by you because they know who you were previously. They can't make sense of it. But there's something totally different about you and it's because you are not that old person anymore. You are, in a very real sense, someone completely new. Fourthly, we see that our charges, our trespasses, our law-breaking, those charges have been nailed to the cross with Jesus. We are so united to Jesus that our very trespasses were nailed to the cross that he died on. Look at Colossians 2.13. He explains further. And you who were dead in your trespasses as we saw and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So he takes both those images he's already talked about, our deadness and our uncircumcision. He says that God made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. So as we know from elsewhere, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The, the, the payment 
The check that we get for our sinning is death. But as we've already seen, God has lifted that sentence of death over us. We've been risen with Christ. And that, of course, means then that those sins have been forgiven. The sentence has been lifted. The penalty has been paid. How exactly has he forgiven us of our trespasses? And he explains that in verse 14. By canceling this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He uses this word, record of debt. And maybe you have a different translation. It says something a little bit different. But the, the idea here, this word record of debt, it's, it's a word that essentially meant something like an IOU. Like you would take a piece of paper, kind of like a receipt, but rather than saying this is what you have paid, it's saying this is what you owe. This is what you still ought to pay. It was an IOU of all the debt, financial in the normal sense, that someone owed someone else. It's a written ledger. As I was thinking about this, I couldn't, we were talking last week about the different careers that are kind of represented within our church. Some of us were talking after the service. There's a lot of medical personnel in our church. There's a lot of teachers in our church. We also notice there's a lot of financial people. And within that financial people, there's a lot of accountants or auditors. And so I'm, I'm just, I, I, was, I was thinking about this. Like imagine if Siobhan and, and Emily Spicala and Christine were to make a ledger. They were, conduct, they were to conduct an audit of your life but they were listing out all the sins in an Excel sheet. Okay? That would be a miserable job for them. That's the idea here. That's a terrifying prospect to have an Excel sheet of all your sins. As Revelation talks about, there's the book of life, but then there's the other book that's open that talked about what everybody did. That's kind of the imagery here. There's a written record of what we did. And, and the, the legal demands, this is a word that Paul uses elsewhere for like God's law, are violating God's law and this record of it. It's our trespasses against God's law that is against us. It's condemning us. All our sin may shout to condemn us as we sing. But what we see then in the rest of verse 14, is that this, this record of our debt, this ledger, this massive Excel sheet that goes on for pages and pages and pages, is nailed to the cross. Christ nailed this list of our trespasses to the cross. As you probably know, when Jesus died, they put a sign above him on the, on the wood that said that he was king of the Jews, which was uh, and they wrote it in different languages, and that was supposed to kind of reflect what his charges were. And this was a thing that sometimes they did, is that they would list out the charges of the person being crucified. So everyone would know what they did, and kind of like, hey, as a public testimony, don't do this, because this is the fate you'll get. Right? Oftentimes people were uh, crucified for things like insurrection. So it would say like insurrection, or causing a riot, or something like that. And that's the idea, is you are, you are dying for you know, tyranny against the Roman Empire. The imagery here, then, is something similar, but rather than listing out Jesus' supposed crimes, what's, what's nailed to the cross is our crimes. He is not dying for his own sins. He's the righteous dying for the unrighteous, as Peter says. When Christ was nailed to the cross, it was our crimes that were listed above his head, so to say, figuratively speaking. And so when Christ was nailed to the cross, it was as if our nails or our sins were nailed to the cross with him. And it makes me think of the, the similar language of the hymn, It Is Well. 
that, that kind of speaks similarly to this. It says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole. What are the next words? Is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And Jesus on the cross says it is finished. Why? Because it's all paid for. That's what Paul wants them to know as well. It is finished, Colossians. It is finished, Crossway. There's nothing else for you to do that you have to do to deal with your sin before a holy God. There's nothing you have to do to earn. The, 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 the sin that you are yet to commit, the sin that you're going to commit at 8 o'clock on Wednesday morning has already been nailed to the cross of Christ. And when we sin, we simply revel in the fact that God has already saved us from those sins. There's no more spiritual experience you need outside of that atonement. Fifthly, Christ has triumphed over angelic forces. He says in verse 15 that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or maybe your translation says in it, referring to the cross, which I think is more likely. So Jesus has disarmed rulers and authorities. He's put them to open, sh open shame. He's triumphed over them in his cross. These uh, rulers and authorities, which are mentioned throughout the book here, we know from elsewhere, like Ephesians 6, where Paul talks about the armor of God, we know that these are referring to angelic beings. This is his way of referring to these angelic powers, evil angelic powers, that is, demons. And what Paul is saying here, he's already said throughout the book in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, for by him all things were created, whether thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities, that Christ has created these angelic powers. We saw in verse 10 of our passage today that Christ is the head, he's the authority, he's the Lord over all rule and authority. And now here he has defeated them. So Christ created them, he's the ruler over them, and now he has defeated them. And he says that he has made a public spectacle of them. That language of public spectacle, it was common in those days when a ruler went out and conquered a land and they took uh, the enemy soldiers as slaves, oftentimes to be killed in the, in the gladiatorial arena or something like that. They would, they would have a procession, kind of like a parade, but it was a parade with the ruler who was you know, there to show off his victory and all the, the slaves about to be killed would kind of be falling in his, in his tail. There'd be a trail of these people who are then, like, a public spectacle was made of them. There was a triumphal entry. And that's the imagery here that Jesus, as he, he takes victory in the cross, these angelic powers and authorities, so-called, are like, we are not to be taken captive by the false teaching, but now he has taken them captive. He triumphs over them and parades them. It's, NFL season is starting, and one of the things I find really annoying Maybe, maybe I'm alone in this. One of the things I find really annoying about the NFL is just how much they showboat when they score or like when they get a sack or something, one of the defensive linemen's all like acting like he's the best guy in the world. I just find it super annoying. But that's kind of the imagery here, right? And in this case, it's not annoying. Jesus is like the athlete showboating over the, angel, the angelic forces who would otherwise accuse us. The irony is that it says that he shamed them in the cross. The, the cross was intended to be this incredibly shameful form of execution, such that the Romans didn't even want to talk about it. It would be like us saying that this person was shamed, he shamed these people by death in the electric chair. 
You know, sometimes we hear cross so much, we kind of get used to that imagery and we, we lose sight of how atrocious it was and how almost embarrassing and shameful it would have been to die that sort of death. You think about like the electric chair. Like if we put an electric, like churches put crosses up in their, in their buildings, it's like putting an image of an electric chair up in your building. It's a bizarre image. It's meant to invoke the shame of the one dying, not the shame of those doing the executing or whoever else. Jesus here, though, shames them by the shame of the cross. This emblem of shame becomes the very way that Christ shames them. And so he wants to say here, listen, Colossians. These Colossians who, as we'll see later, they had a fixation on angels. Maybe they thought the angels were what they needed in order to access God, or they thought the angels held power over them and they needed to be kind of placated so that the angels would give them good favor. Whatever the case is, Paul says, you don't have any reason to fear these angelic powers. Christ created them, he's Lord over them, and he's defeated them. And so to us, even today with maybe New Age influences or supernaturalism, sometimes you can come across people, and maybe you, where we struggle with you know, fearing the supernatural or superstitious things, the dark forces, curses, things being haunted. Paul would tell us, Christ is Lord over those things, and he has defeated those things. And how has he defeated those things? He says that he disarmed those rulers. He disarmed them. It's like the person who has a weapon, and it's taken away. They don't have any ability now to threaten you. Their weapon is gone. Or if, if, uh, if you go to the Milwaukee Zoo, sometimes you can see like a lion or a tiger or something. There's that big, thick sheet of glass that gives you all the courage to walk up and get close. That, that thick glass wasn't there, you'd be running away, right? But we, have that, we, we know there's a barrier there. They don't have any ability to attack us. We can get really close to them. Or if you've ever held something like a snake that is actually a venomous snake, but they've removed the venom or they've removed the fangs or something like that so it can't actually hurt you. We don't have to worry. These, these angelic, these dark forces have been defeated. They've been defanged. It's this word for putting, this word for disarm is the same word that was used earlier for the putting off of our sinful flesh and circumcision. So the idea here is just as our sinful flesh was put off, so Christ has put off these angelic forces' ability to accuse us. And he's done this in the cross, as we saw. They don't have any more power to accuse, as Paul says in Romans 8, that everyone who is in Christ, there is now no condemnation for them. I love this imagery we get from the book of Revelation. Where Revelation in chapter 12, it says the dragon was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For that accuser of the brothers, that, that dragon, that ancient serpent, the one who would accuse the saints of their sins, he has been thrown down, the one who accuses them day and night. Satan, the serpent, has been defanged. And he has been thrown down, no longer able to accuse you, believer. And so Paul tells us this. He says, continue in Christ. Don't be taken captive. 
because you have full salvation in him. That Jesus has full divinity in human form. That our, our sinful flesh has been circumcised in Christ. We've been buried and raised with Christ in baptism. Our charges have been nailed to the cross with Christ. And Christ has triumphed over angelic forces. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is one additional image we can add to Paul's list of images here. The Lord's Supper speaks to our full salvation in Jesus as well. It speaks to the fact that we have been fully forgiven. Jesus is the Passover sacrifice, and the wrath of God now passes over us because of his blood. He drank the cup of God's wrath fully. Every drop of that wrath that would have otherwise made us stagger in God's wrath. Jesus drank that cup. The Lord's Supper is, as Jesus says, it's a new covenant in his blood. The new covenant that the prophets looked for has been ratified in the Lord's Supper. Ratified in his death, sorry, that is, that the Lord's Supper depicts. And in the, Lord, in the Lord's Supper, in the new covenant, Jesus and the prophets, they say that the Spirit will come and will transform the hearts of his people. The Spirit will circumcise their hearts, writing God's law on our hearts. And Jesus has won that new covenant for us. And just as we think about food and drink as things that nourish our bodies physically, so the very image of the Lord's Supper, the imagery of the Lord's Supper being food and drink, it communicates that Jesus is all the spiritual nourishment we need, that we are sustained by Jesus, by specifically the, his death depicted in the bread and the cup. And so believer, don't look elsewhere. Don't be taken captive to anything other than Christ. Be captive to Christ. Continue walking in him. That's the direction you walk. In other words, be enamored with Jesus. And as we are enamored with Jesus, that's what Paul wants to do here. He spends so much time not actually describing the false teaching so much as actually describing just Jesus because he wants us to be enamored with Jesus. And we, when we are enamored with Jesus, every alternative is going to lose its luster. And I think there are, there are few, if any, more important messages for the church than this. If I was to think of like the most important messages that the church needs to hold to, just at any time, not specifically ours, but just any church, it's the fact that we need to be reminded and obsessed, fixated with the fact that we have everything we need in Jesus. Our gospel is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. And if you're here today and you are not one who has yet put your faith in Christ, then that's how this passage comes to you, is to say, put your faith in Christ. He is all you need, and he has all you need for salvation for anyone who puts their trust in him.